Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that thinks pundits missed a pun by not calling a low block a lockdown. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent the last three years working as an FA licensing intermediary here in the UK. My co-host, Rupert Meadows, has written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Jimmy Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. A horribly timely um, only podcast that this week. Thank you for that one. Um, Happy New Year to all our listeners as well. We hope you enjoyed the winter break and festive period as much as we did, and we are looking forward to getting back into things. This episode with a look at the state of the league so far. It's been a weird old season, as we are, I guess we all expected, due to the unprecedented circumstances. So now that we're coming up to the halfway point, what do we know now that we didn't know at the start? We are going to be running down the list of all 20 Premier League clubs, starting with Liverpool. Yeah, pound for pound, Liverpool are definitely still the strongest team in the league for me. But this time last season, not only were they top of the league, but you're also looking at them and wondering where they were going to drop points. You saw all the fixes they had coming up, and even against the tougher sides, you thought, "Mm, three points here, three points there, three points there, because they were that strong. But this season, that's just not really the case. Uh, As a side, they've had the second most draws of any team, with six. Only Brighton have had more draws. And notably, some of these draws have been to sides that last season they'd have not only been winning against, but easily beating, like West Brom, Fulham, Brighton. Those are the teams in 19th, 18th, and 17th. So Liverpool are still the best team in the league for me, but the dominance that they showed last season isn't really being exhibited this time around. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, you know, you've got to point to injuries, at least in parts, for that, because... You know, just they are not the same team without the likes of Virgil van Dijk and Jordan Henderson and Trent Alexander-Arnold. And as a result of them being in and then out the starting lineup, I think they've struggled. Obviously, we're kind of recording this at a time when they've just lost to Southampton. And in that game, I was quite concerned about Thiago. It felt like he was a little off the pace uh, and that maybe he... You know, was dictating play, but wasn't moving with the urgency required to break Southampton down. Um, just as an example of, I guess, a difference from last season. They definitely feel a lot less brutal and ruthless, as you said. And I, I just feel like while sometimes the bit part team with players like Fabinho at centre-back can do a good job, it's not going to win every game guaranteed. Yeah, over time, you're right. In the occasional match, you will look at them and go, oh, wow, he's putting a shift to centre-back. But obviously, over time, that's going to yield less impressive results than having someone like Virgil van Dijk. Um, And I think, you know, they they have still had a really, really good record against the top six. They've beaten Arsenal, Spurs and Chelsea. Uh, They've also beaten Leicester, who are sort of like the honorary seventh member of the top six. Um, And they drew away at Man City, which is a good result as well. Um, and I think, bizarrely speaking of City, they have kind of had almost like a Pep-esque season in terms of like, they'll have one of these draws to a side they shouldn't really draw with, and then just absolutely bash Wolves 4-0 or smash Palace 7-0. Um, so I think, you know, at their best, they are still the best side, but we're just... And I, I really don't mean this to discredit them, I think it's more to credit them last season because they managed to operate at such a high level of excellence for so long, and this is just more playing like a regular football team. But the fact that... You know, United could go above them this weekend is something that, had you told me that again at the start of the season, there's no chance I would have believed that narrative. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess also interesting to note, as you said, just how impressive they were as a side last year when we can talk about them currently top of the table and how they're nowhere near what they were. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. The fact that they're still top and we're going, oh, yeah, they're not quite the same. It speaks to how good they were. Um, but yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how they finish up. I still would say they're probably going to win the league, but it's a long old season, so who knows? It sure is. Moving on to the side currently breathing down Liverpool's neck in second place, Manchester United. Yeah, and if you told me Manchester United were the side with the most league wins so far this season, I'd call you a liar. And I say that having watched every game of them this season, and also went through the table pretty recently to write these notes. Um, yeah, here we are. United are, you know, breathing down their neck, as you say, and they're only second, you know, by, by a fine margin. They're, they're not that far off the pace. They're not at all. I mean, I think they have come on in leaps and bounds as the start of the season and are definitely outperforming my expectations of, of what I was expecting to see for the season. Um, I've been really impressed with them so far. Yeah, I think there's some areas to be impressed at. There's some other areas where, you know, for me, I think at the back, they're a suspect of ever. Um, they've got an average of one and a half goals conceded every game. And the only reason that's cancelled out is because they've had, you know, the ability to fill their boots often late on. They've scored the second most goals of any side after Liverpool and have won three different games 3-2, which is quite, it's quite specifically weird. You don't see a lot of 3-2s and United have got three already. Uh, those being, of course, Brighton away, Southampton away and Sheffield United away. And it's just funny because United, whenever they're in the in the market, they're almost always linked with attacking players. Sancho and Grealish were the ones of, of the summer. Haaland is the one coming into the winter window. But maybe it's the case that their attention should be focused more towards like a centre-back or another defensive midfield because that's where they're looking to be, you know, tripped up for, for my money anyway. Oh, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean... They definitely need to improve in, in their in their defence. And it's strange because they've been trying to improve in their defence and they've picked up players like Alex Tejas, who I'm a big, big fan of, but he still hasn't ousted Luke Shaw yet, which is a little strange. And to me, maybe points to, I think we've talked about it before, the fact that um, you know maybe Ole needs to be a little bit more ambitious with his sides. Maybe he needs to play Edison Cavani a little bit more, for example. Um, mm. That being a different point, separate from... What we're talking about now but yeah the, the defense is the place that needs the most work which is funny because if again you know you'd talk to me at the beginning of the season I would have said midfield was where they were weakest yeah or, or maybe even up front but um they have been getting their goals largely in part due to Bruno Fernandes but you know the, the other lads are getting their goals as well um I, I do think I mean, it's, we're going to discuss this with a few teams. There's one team in particular we're going to cover later, but I do think that maybe the discussion of United being title challenges is a little premature. I don't know if you agree, but for me, a few of their games have ended largely in their favour due to an element of good fortune, which is not a bad thing. Pretty much every title challenge has its fair share of good fortune, but I think in terms of just watching them play... I don't get the idea. For me, it doesn't look like they're playing like champions yet. I mean, I would add to that that I don't know that anyone has looked like that often this season. I think the Liverpool have in games like beating Wolves 4-0 and Palace 7-0. But a lot of United's games, though wins, have been very tight wins, wins last minute. And those can win you titles. Those have won United titles. But I, I don't know. It's kind of like when we discussed Tottenham and we're going to discuss them again later. But a couple of weeks ago when everyone was saying, are they going to you know, make a challenge for the title? I think we just need a little bit more time to see what they're going to play like. Because at the moment, I'm, I'm not convinced yet. But undeniably, they've definitely closed the gap. I mean, last season, after 16 games, they were sat in fifth. 
They were 22 points behind Liverpool, uh, and now they're just right behind them. Um, it's definitely just undeniable they've closed the gap with Liverpool. Also with City, who they're actually above, albeit with City having a game in hand. Um, and I think it's just it's an interesting time to be a United fan, because maybe it's yet another false dawn, um, but maybe this is a sign of things slowly getting better. Yeah, I actually would slightly disagree with you and just say that I think I have been quite impressed with them this season in that I think that they've been getting results where I would not expect them to, such as, you know, beating Everton away from home 3-1 or, you know, even getting three points away at Aston Villa these days is a really good scoreline. Drawing 0-0 with City is really good to keep them to a clean sheet. Um, you know, beating Wolves 1-0, these are games that trip up a lot of teams and they, for the most part, are riding the challenges. I do also think it's a funny double-edged sword to say that they've been winning their games with a little bit of luck or in the last few minutes because that little bit of luck in those last few minutes is often what decides, you know, first place and second place. Um, And the classic thing is that when a side is playing not at their best but still getting results is when you know you might have a, a title challenge on your hands uh, no I, I 100% agree with what you just said there and that's sort of it, it's the dual nature of what I said because on the one hand if a team keeps winning games that you might think based on the the way they've played they didn't deserve to one way to look at that is what I've said which is well eventually you know the luck will run out but if that luck continues on for long enough and you get three points enough times doesn't matter if the luck runs out when you've already got 80 points yeah, exactly. So, you know, they do definitely have areas from improvement. Um, but that also just means to me that, you know, they've got room for growth. Um, mm. And I think that if Alex Tejas does come into their defence, their side does get better. I think that I know that I am maybe quite critical of uh, Harry Maguire at times, but I do think that he is a better player than what he's currently showing. I think mm-hmm. that they've got a great young goalkeeper coming through in Dean Henderson. And when he is fully established, I think the, the defence will look like a different entity. So, yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged. And I think Manchester United fans should be as well. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with them uh, over the course of the season. I think it, it's going to be the first time in, in a long time that they're in a challenge, if indeed they are this this season. Um, looking at another team who are uh, chasing the head of the pack and maybe a bit surprisingly high uh, is Leicester, who are currently third place. Yeah, Leicester are just the ultimate team who just defy expectations. And every time people discount them because they've lost their best two players or their key striker is surely at the end of his uh, great career, they just continue to defy you know any sort of... Um, tether that people try to place on them they've got a really young squad they've got young players breaking through that's balanced quite nicely with slightly older heads and Jamie Mm. Vardy even players like Mark Albrighton Um, while you know they're not always considered to be Premier League quality um, I think are still you know very valuable and and do a good job they've they've bought pretty well you've got to say Um, Timothy Castagna players like that and yeah I mean Long may it continue. It's always nice to see them near the top of the table. 
Yeah, the players that have stepped into the side have, have really performed. Obviously, the signings like Timothy Castagna and Wesley Fofana, of course, but James Justin as well has stepped up into a role that I don't think a lot of people were expecting him to have this season and has done really well. I think he was meant to just be a stopgap for Ricardo Pereira and has now nicked his place in the team. Um, I think they've got a lot of exciting young players coming through. I think that midfield three, like I mentioned last episode, I, I don't think they've lost a game when they've had that midfield three of Madison Tielemans and indeed he's starting as a midfield three. Um, and the more disappointing results have been when they've had one of them missing and it's been Nampolis Mendy or or someone else or Harvey Barnes playing instead of Madison instead of uh, alongside Madison um I also think it's interesting to note I think we had a little conversation about this over the holidays um the whole Jamie Vardy conversation about how he's 33 years old 33 in you know footballer years kind of like how you know dog dog years are seven for everyone footballer years if you're 33 are like 90 in human years but there is definitely two things that we've discussed on the podcast before one of them being the fact that top level athletes i think as the game increase you know as the game improves and the science around it increases and nutrition and all that stuff are going to play for a lot longer and secondly it does seem to be the case and this is something that we're only really seeing these days because it's more prevalent at the top level these days but players who have waited until a little bit later in their career to start playing at the intensity of the top level tend to have a little bit more gas in the tank Jamie Vardy is one really good example of this because he still plays like he's 28 years old. Olivier Giroud is another really good example over at Chelsea who is way past what is typically the sell-by date, especially of a slower player, but doesn't look like he's slowing down at all and is maybe having one of his best seasons uh, ever wearing a shirt in the Premier League. So I do think that maybe, and especially in general with the whole nutrition thing, but especially with players like Jamie Vardy who didn't play at the intensity of Premier League level until later in their life, we might see him playing, you know, Zlatan-esque of the years, you know, playing to these 38, 39. Yeah, we might. So it's interesting to hear you say that because I always think of it as being players that build their success and their career on physicality are the players that have the least longevity. So someone like Olivier Giroud, I would say, is probably safer than Jamie Vardy because he's bigger than he is quick. Whereas, you know, you, you do expect players to lose a half a yard. But I think that's where what you said after that really steps in, which is that he just has had less time at the top. So, you know, it, it does mean that he is maybe a little less burnt out. I mean, I definitely um, remember looking at Ryan Giggs when I was like, a kid and just thinking, like, how are you 36? Because he's had grey hair and, like, a massive bald spot. And players do just run out of gas. Um, so it's really cool to see him um, still doing it at the top. Uh, look forward to, to seeing him for a good year or two longer. And, yeah, I think um, Leicester City, I, I think, will not finish above third. Um, I, I think this is probably their highest point that they'll get to this season, just because for all of the strength of that midfield, and I do think that that midfield will continue to improve um, now that Madison's back from injury and back on form, I, I do just feel like they slip up too many times to be in the running and, and comfortably top four. Um, I, I just think they've got too many mistakes in them. Yeah, I agree. I definitely think the biggest obstacle they have to conquer this season will be themselves. Um, and I think this is, you know, it is a Leicester thing. It is also a Brendan Rodgers thing. They'll need to make sure that they can keep up the consistency that they've been showing throughout the season. And already, 17 games in, we've seen the odd slip up. We've seen them lose to Fulham. So extrapolate that over the course of a whole season. You can probably imagine there are going to be a few more. Um, so. 
you know, we'll, we'll see how they get on. Um, it could also just be a way for them to eat the frog and finally get over this sort of curse of not being able to finish well. We'll see. Only time will tell. Moving on, Tottenham Hotspur finish up off top four. Yeah, and although they finished this little section, this for me is sort of where the table starts to get really, really interesting. You've got the top three teams all sort of on their various little tiers and goal difference separating it massively. But here is where we've got three teams on 29 points, four teams on 26 points, and two teams each on 23 and 22 points. So just a couple of bad weeks, as has been very, very common for every team this season, basically, could send you to the other end of the table. You could go from 4th to 14th if you lose two, three games. Um... And, you know, speaking of, Tottenham are a great place to start. Um, just a few weeks ago, they were being talked about as a potential title threat. And, you know, as a side still in the top four, their most recent game being a 3-0 triumph over Leeds, it's not as if they've fallen off the face of the earth. But they had a very difficult Christmas period, picking up one from, you know, a possible nine. That kind of form, it can be really dangerous when the league is this compressed. It really can, and obviously you can't look past the fact that they did play Liverpool, they did play Leicester, they did play Wolves, three really tough sides. But yeah, definitely some of the gloss has gone from, I guess, the the early season sheen. Um, And I guess the the main question is, that: do they have a big enough squad to challenge, in my mind? Because it's a problem that has plagued them for as long as I can remember. They've always been a cup-run side rather than a league side, in the sense that they've always had a, a... decent starting 11 and a weaker um, depth but I do wonder you know now that the fixtures are coming thick and fast if they have the legs to to challenge well it's, it's interesting you touch on that because one of my questions about Spurs as a, as a side was whether they're letting themselves down by not taking full advantage of their squad um, I think it was you know you made the point the other day that you thought that Jose Mourinho wouldn't see full success at Spurs unless he got the best out of Dele Alli who's only played 74 minutes in total this season um, Gareth Bale has only had one start this season obviously there's been injuries and, and things of that nature but those are two players who if you can get them playing even 75% of their best, you're going to have two absolute top players on your hands. So is their squad deep enough? Maybe it's not as deep as, say, you know, uh, a Chelsea or a Man City, but I still think they have a good amount of quality uh, in reserve that hasn't been used yet. And obviously, yes, as to your point about the the games that they did lose over the Christmas period, yes, it was Leicester, yes, it was Liverpool. These are tough sides. But just in relation to, you know, I, I think it was kind of, a crashing down, not maybe not a crashing down to earth, but a bit of a wake-up call to everyone who had sort of been looking at Spurs as league winners, which, season's still young, could still happen. But if you are league winners, you kind of need to be approaching those games with more of a likelihood to win. And I know we maybe disagree slightly on the whether Spurs had a chance in that Liverpool game, but I think if you're not winning either of those games, you're probably not in the conversation to be the best team in the league, which is who the champions are. Yeah, definitely. Very reasonable. I think that while people are talking about them as potential title contenders, that was always with a little bit of surprise in their voice. And I don't think that the general idea was that they had, you know, even the one of the best three squads in the Prem. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, just the, the two players you talked about there. I do feel like if Gareth Bale was going to have a good season, he would have already kicked off at this point. That's mm-hmm. just my feeling that I think that he's old enough that he would have had to hit the ground running. But I, you know, it's it's such a heartwarming story to see a player like that return to the club where he's loved. That obviously I hope that he does pick it up. But I would not be surprised if 
he doesn't really play much and he doesn't really score much or have much of an impact. Deli Alley, still time for him, but it's not looking so good at the moment. Time will tell. I, I just think both those players, because obviously not only do they represent, you know, potentially untapped talent in the squad, but they also represent really interesting attacking options. And I think that's where Spurs are maybe not not crying out for the most because they've just won 3-0 against Leeds. But again, that's also because Leeds are just kind of mental. But I think the thing with Spurs and with all teams at the moment, I mean, I've just read out how how close the table is. Goal difference, I have this feeling, is going to be so, so important by the time that all the dust is cleared and we look at the end of the table. We may well have European spots, maybe even the title decided on goal difference. So now is the time to fill your boots. And just games like the Wolves game where they scored really early. And Mourinho, I mean, we've joked about this on the podcast. It's not even really a joke. You knew that as soon as they scored the early goal, he was going to try and take it to a 1-0. And they ended up paying for that dearly. Was that a smart decision by him? If it worked out, if it worked out, people might say, "Yeah." I would argue, even if it did work out, no. Try and fill your boots. Try and get those goals when you're on top of the game. Don't just sit back, risk yourself for a one-one. And even if you do win, you've just got plus one on the goal difference. Where you know a Liverpool or a City are going to put five past a, a team that is looking not fully in the game. So, Cameron, are you suggesting that Jose Mourinho doesn't have a winner's mentality, or has lost it, or never had it? I just think that he is not willing to change. I think he is an old, stubborn guy. I can kind of understand why, because he's won uh, a huge amount in his career by saying it's my way or the highway. But ironically enough, in much the same way that he's taunted several of his managerial peers, he is now the guy who's a bit, you know, a bit old hat, needs to learn to adapt. It's a new man's game. And there are still things that he's going to do better than anyone else. But there are also going to be things that he does that just ill-advised like trying to take it to one nil after like a second minute goal yeah very true um and you know if anything was ever true in football it is that new will inevitably replace old in tactics in players in managers in all things and i agree with you that his time has come and gone I think it's looking like it. Shall we move into a bit of guessing game before we continue with our analysis of the season so far Yes, let's. Um, I have a player for you to guess. Uh, you may or may not get him. I think you'll get him. Um, I'm hoping that people at home will also uh, find him gettable. Um, I have three clues for you. The first okay. being that he has two nicknames. Okay. One, uh, translate. they're all translated to English or they're originally in English. I feel like this is like a, a thing to mention before I give any nicknames. Um, The Gunfighter is one of his nicknames and the other one is The Rabbit Um, he is no stranger to controversy having been once banned for eight games domestically and also internationally for four months for two completely unrelated types of incident okay the third clue is that he is one of only two players to have scored a hat-trick in El Clasico in the last 26 years. One of only two players to score a hat-trick in El Clasico in the last 26 years. Yes, sir. Mm, I have a good idea of who this is. I also... I think I, I've been trying to guess the, the languages that those nicknames have originated from. So I, I think I have an idea. Which language do you think they are? Oh, we'll save it for you. We'll save it for later. 
I, th- I think I think the gunfighter is not in English, and I think I know what the the word you're saying is. Interesting. Well, like, you'll have to wait till later in the episode to find out, Cameron. Let's well, keep, Let's keep rolling on and go down to fifth place with Manchester City, who you predicted top of the table by the end of the season. Yeah, and, and you know what? I, I don't think that that is necessarily off the table. I mean, firstly, they're on 29 points, but they only have played 15 games as compared to 16 or 17 everyone else has played. Um, but I think my thing with Man City is, and the way that I think their season is going to go, is based on, A, how they do in Europe. But uh, my thing with Man City is that it's kind of a weird one because I don't think that professional footballers ever wouldn't try. But I watch them and it's like almost you get a sometimes you get like a brief glimpse of how good they're capable of being, but it's almost like they don't care enough to play like that all the time. And it's it's not that probably because I don't think that anyone will be that cynical, but it almost feels like they've achieved pretty much everything you can domestically. They've won the league with a hundred points. They've won all the you know, FA Cup, Community Shield, blah 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 blah. And it's just weird because sometimes you'll see Liverpool, for example, put on their big boy pants and just absolutely blast someone seven nil. And City have done that with Burnley this season. But I looked at the game against Chelsea was their most recent game. And they scored three. And I thought for a second they were really going to open up the Jets and sort of have their have a response of their own and say, no, 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 we're still the big team. And they kind of just sat back. And I kind of understand that from a tactical point of view. But it was just sort of, I, I don't know, it just kind of showed to me something that I'd seen and couldn't quite put my finger on with a lot of their other games. Like... You know some some of the games that they've drawn recently that they really didn't have any business drawing, and I know they're good enough to win those games with ease as well. So I don't know. Maybe there's just fatigue um, or, or just like a lack of drive. Like when you saw Liverpool last season, how ferocious were they the whole season through? Because you could tell winning the league meant the world to them. And I think maybe for Man City and and maybe Pep and maybe the people at Man City, you know, in in the back room, it's not as important. And so for me, maybe it's going to be linked in with their European run, because I think the Champions League is the big one for them. I wouldn't be surprised if they get knocked out like the quarterfinals to see a really late push from them. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, it's been a really interesting season to watch them because they have been quite a stop-start and sometimes they've looked like they're going to claim the title back. Other times they look like, you know, they just haven't received proper instructions from the manager. Um, and to, to speak to that lack of ambition, I think... You probably don't need to look much further than what happened this week and last week, which was that five players have tested positive for coronavirus after an alleged party thrown by Kyle Walker. Um, And this is, you know, a player that is one of the older heads in the dressing room. In theory, one of the, I guess, not trendsetters, but do you know what I mean? Like atmosphere setters. And he, that to me does not speak of a like a player that needs to win that's a player that is having a good time yeah and I think it's interesting firstly that when the Carl Walker alleged news there's nothing being confirmed but firstly when that news came out I don't know about you but were you like Carl Walker really (laughs) or were you you like oh and then secondly there's been more news that's come out over the last 48 hours that apparently Ben Mondi had his own separate New Year's party yeah, see, it, I know what you mean. Definitely Carl Walker is not a, um, a player that I was surprised to see. Actually, when I looked up the, um, the, the story, I was swamped first by um, 
stories from April and then from May for two <laughs> other separate incidents with different types of party, and we'll leave it at that. Um, and yeah, Ben Mendy having a party as well is crazy. It does just feel like sometimes Kevin De Bruyne is the only professional player at the club, to be honest. Well, that's what I mean. It's kind of hard to find the right words to put it in because I don't think it, you know, Carl Walker being Carl Walker doesn't necessarily embody the, the behaviour of the entire club. But I do think that the fact that there are players and well, allegedly players plural, the ones who are at Carl Walker, Ben Mondi and the ones that are at their parties, just aren't that bothered or, or aren't taking it that seriously, which I, I can kind of get. Maybe there's just a natural kind of lethargy that sets in when you've won as much as they have at the domestic level. But I don't know, it it just feels to me like we're not seeing anywhere close to how good they are because sometimes we do, we see it for like half an hour or a full Burnley game, but I don't know, it, it's weird. Well, you say they've won as much as they have won. They've never won a, a Champions League, so... No, I, I mean I mean domestically. That, that's like, why I was... You know, making... They've won, is it two leagues they've won? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's good. It's the best of anyone, I think. I don't think anyone's won the same or more. But it's not dominant in five no, years. I, I, I agree. And you look at the way that, for example, Liverpool are playing and you can tell that they are not happy having won the league once. They want to establish a dynasty. Um, and that's why it's surprising to me that Man City have sort of... It's, it's just my reasoning of it, basically. Because I think everyone's looking at Man City in the same way. On paper, they should be the best or at least second best team in the league. And yet they're not every week. Sometimes they come out and they look absolutely ridiculous. And everyone's going, oh, Pep's a genius. Man City play new era football. They're amazing. And then other weeks they'll just go out and get smashed 5-2 by Leicester. Or worse, draw with like a Leeds or someone. Yeah, agreed. Um, but, you know, definitely the the title challenge is still alive, as you mentioned. Um, you know, Ferran Torres has been a great addition. I've really enjoyed watching him grow into the side as, as the season goes on, Phil Foden as well. It's exciting to see another young English player coming through. Um, you know, they've got some quality players and, and they definitely could still be in with a chance to win. But yeah, definitely cracks in the facade, I think, is, is the tagline. It really is. Uh, looking at another team with uh, a couple of cracks... Well, not even cracks, it's kind of just like land and then a massive valley and then land, is Everton who are a team that just go so from one end of the spectrum to the other with no in-between. They have, like, these massive surging runs of form and then just surging runs of losses. Like, over the Christmas period, they had this really, really interesting, sort of exciting, like, run of form, beating Chelsea, Leicester, and Arsenal back-to-back, which is usually something you'd expect of the other Mercy side. But Everton have shown, you know, they can do it with the big boys, they can win, but then they can also just lose games they're not meant to, like losing the game to West Ham, which I thought was just a bizarre game to lose. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite easy to see why, from my perspective at least, which is that Everton finished 12th last season and they signed a couple of great players who have massively boosted their starting lineup. And when they're all playing, they can be really dominant, but they're not just magically going to become top four, even top six or top eight necessarily. Yeah, but the way they're doing it is weird, though. I would kind of understand that if they were winning the games against your Fulhams and your West Hams, but then they were losing the games to your Arsenals and your Chelsea's and your Leicester's, but it's the other way around. Well, true, but I think it's the reason why that there isn't a real pattern there is because the pattern is with the players that start on the pitch rather than the opposition. I think if they have their, their best eleven 
with their midfield of Ducore, Andre Go- Gomez, um, James Rodriguez. Um, I think that they can beat literally anyone. But if all of those players, and Alan, sorry, if all yeah. of those players aren't playing, then they just, you know, it's they're like papering over the cracks, I think. Um, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think there's an aspect of truth to that. But at the same time, I did want to slightly challenge the idea that Richarlison and, and Rodriguez have had absolutely stupendous seasons so far anyway, because they've both been out for injury or suspension for various times. But if you take away Everton's first four games, which was where they were having that crazy run where they won all four and they were top of the league, Richarlison has scored one goal and registered two assists despite playing all but four of Everton's games outside that period. Um, and then similarly, James Rodriguez has picked up one assist in that time frame. Although instead of missing four games, he missed five and only played 25 minutes against West Ham. So fitness has also been an issue there. But both of these players, yes, it's best when all of them play together. But I think all of the individual players also need to pull up their socks a little bit more. I think Dominic Calvert-Lewin's been having a good crack at doing that. But he, as we've discussed, is at his best when he just needs to focus on being a striker. But I think, personally, I think we know that Richarlison's a really, really good player. I'd love to see a bit more from him, even when the team isn't at full strength. Because in a game like this one against West Ham, uh, he, he just wasn't pulling out the kind of stuff that you know he can. You, you, the kind of things that you know he can do. Um, but that's because so yeah, he's I, not surrounded by all of the players that bring that out of him. Like, if they're missing one or two of those key players, even if the other key players are playing, they're just not quite the same. To me... Everton is like a mirror image of Aston Villa. And the reason why I say that is because I think Aston Villa are doing really well and all of their players are fit and it shows they're performing above expectations. Everton were performing above expectations, had a bunch of injury hits and are now stumbling here and there. I understand that, but I'm saying with specific reference to Richarlison, we've seen evidence that he can use his individual talent in the Premier League. He's played for Everton in seasons prior to this one and had games where he's been the sole shining light. And so now it's almost like he's got used to having that support system. And what I would like to see from a player like him, who's been at the club a lot longer than the other other guys, is to sort of, when the chips are down and other people are sort of out, go, okay, listen, we haven't got plan A, but we're good enough with plan B. Let's lead a rallying charge. And instead, it's just not really worked out that way. I mean, they are still on 29 points, but that's just, that's my area. If I was Carlo Ancelotti, obviously, yes, you're going to expect your squad to be better when you have everyone, but that doesn't mean that when you're missing two or three key players, it should all just go to shit. No, true. Um, it's it's an interesting um, pattern for sure. I think that what's interesting about that, as you say, with, with Richarlison, is that you would expect having moved from Watford, where he was sometimes called on to be that talisman, be that player that made the difference, that he hasn't quite managed to unlock that yet in this side. Um, But I still think they have one or two tricks up their sleeve and I still think that they could, you know, I I think they'll definitely finish top 10. Um, But it'll just be, I guess, to see how often they can win three or four nil and dominate. Yeah, I think so. And and just on your Richardson thing that obviously he did that for Watford. He also did it for Everton for the last few seasons. So, you know. Yeah, true. So, so I don't know. That, that's, that's what I'd be liking to look at. But um, speaking of Villa, as you brought them up, let's move on to them. Let's. And what a season they are having. It's weird because we've just been quite like sceptical, critical of two sides that are above them at the moment. But you know, just in terms of expectations for the season, Villa are... I would say, outperforming their expected uh, returns the most. Um, And 
it's just been such a joy to watch them. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that's going to come up a lot in our conversations where, you know, we're going to look at, for example, later on in the table, Arsenal and Leeds, who are right next to each other in the table. One of those teams is having a very good season by their standards. The others is not. I'll leave it to the listeners to wait and find out which one's which. But yeah, no, you know, Everton, uh, I maybe would expect a bit more from, but Villa, who are a side that looked like they were going to go down, have just turned it around massively. And I think, really, Villa this season have become the gold standard of Premier League player recruitment. Um, you can look at so many other teams, and we will later on, that spend money in really odd places and aren't afraid of, you know, splashing out 20 million here or 15 million there, but end up with nothing to show for it. And Villa, conversely, have made five really smart signings and I'm only sort of including Ross Barkley in that because he hasn't even had that much of a role recently in the sort of front three behind Ollie Watkins um but they've just turned around really really well they're three points off the top four they like Man City have only played 15 games so you know they, they have potentially three points more if, if they win their game in hand um and I just think it's a really exciting side to watch for a number of reasons they've got a top quality keeper Emmy Martinez who is I, I, it's hard to say where he is in terms of the keeps in the league, but I, I'd be arg- I think you can make the argument he's top three in the league. Um, Grealish, again, top, top, top attacking midfielder. They've got really young team. Every outfield regular player is 27 or younger. Um, I, I just don't, outside of the fact that they've prepared really well, I don't have a huge amount to say about Villa that I haven't already said in previous episodes, other than I'm really interested in seeing where they go next, because it looks like it should be blue skies for them. But this is football, so you never know. <laughs> Yeah, true. I mean, when we talk about how fun they've been to watch this season so far, they have a cruel run of games coming up with Absolutely. Four um, Liverpool row, next, then Tottenham, then Everton, then Man City away, um, and then Burnley away. So just a whole bunch of different challenges there. And, you know, I think old Villa would have been looking to take maybe a couple of points from that. New Villa, it feels like they're going to go out and try and get at least a win or two. Um, and as you said, a real testament to how good signings, not a lot of signings, but good signings, can make a massive difference. Just here or there, one or two key players brought in, system not changed, but enhanced, has made all the difference. Um, Ollie Watkins and Martinez on either side of the pitch. And yeah, um, I personally don't see any real like road bumps in, in, in their future for the for the season I, I can't see the apart from a serious injury crisis mm. I can't see them slipping up too much yeah no me, neither can I but that's <laughs> yeah, my only caveat there was like it is football so you never know <laughs> very true Which, all, all of a sudden Jack Grealish might decide that he, he's had enough he wants to down tools he's decided he's gonna <laughs> just not not play for the side again and all of a sudden they're in crisis but I, I don't know I think I think they'll be it's, and it's a good side to watch succeed, um, especially partly because it's the Cinderella story of how bad they were last season and turning around and not just doing well, but playing some really nice football as well. They're one of the sides that I look forward to watching every weekend. Yeah, definitely. But it is funny. I definitely do do feel like uh, the minute you think you know something is the minute you get proved wrong. And uh, probably nowhere is that more true at the moment than at Chelsea because they're having a pretty weird old time. Yeah, so Chelsea are maybe, for me, the most interesting team on this list in terms of me wanting to get your thoughts on it. Because I think they're in such a bizarre position. They overachieved last season, for sure, with the squad that they had. No one was expecting them to do that well. 
and maybe that's come back to bite them a little bit because had Chelsea finished 10th or, or 8th or something like that or outside the top 6 like a lot of people were expecting them to maybe there'd be more sympathy for this project getting off the ground because they've invested over 200 million pounds and it doesn't look like they've got better yeah no it doesn't at all they've gone from like the little the little engine that could to like HS2 um, <laughs> exactly yeah and yeah it's it's a really yeah, it's, it's strange to be honest I I just think that players are struggling to bet in um, the main thing that's changed is expectation and it's a young side and it's a young manager and I don't think either of those are necessarily handling it very well their key players are still putting in mostly good shifts um, by which I mean people like Mendy N'Golo Kante, Mason Mount, um, but you know they've got a lot of players that need to start stepping up, who are currently not. I, well, I was going to single out N'Golo Kante. To be honest with you, I, I think he had a good start to the season, but in some of Chelsea's more recent games, particularly the the Man City one, so maybe that's just what's fresh in my mind. Where I was sort of just wondering what what's happened to him a bit because. The other ones, to a lesser extent, that I was also looking about this, because a lot of the criticism towards Chelsea, very predictably and very obviously, and in some cases very fairly, is going towards the new kids. Um, People are just slating Timo Werner for not being able to hit the target. And yes, obviously, that's the big headline news. But also, some of the more, you know, dependable, established members of the squad, like Kante, I thought Azpilicueta to a certain extent, I know he hasn't played every game this season, but when he's played, usually he's one of those, you know, names in the Chelsea team that I thought never has a game worse than 7 out of 10. And he's been kind of absent in a lot of Chelsea's games. Kante in the City game, I thought, was just caught without the ball a lot of the time. So it's something weird to me with Chelsea, because I can kind of buy the logic if that's the narrative that people want to say, oh, it'll take time for these young players to come in, it'll take time, next season Chelsea will be good, or maybe it'll be you know three-quarters of the way through this season. I can completely get on board with that narrative, because it's true, it does take a lot of players you know time to adapt. But Chelsea as a whole team don't look all there. I don't know if you, you agree or disagree with that. I would agree with you. I think that to talk about Kante is to talk about a couple of different interesting points at the same time. The first is that Lampard made what I consider to be a very good tactical switch, which is to play him in his more natural position as a holding midfielder. Um, I think he just always plays better there than he does slightly further forward, and it's where he should always be. That being Mm. said, you know, you can't call him an assertive man. Mm. Uh, And I, I feel like there is maybe a certain weakness to be had in a silent midfield general. By which I mean, when you think of the profile of Kante as a player, he he's a terrier, he's a runner. Think Jordan Henderson. like He, in theory, should be the heart of the team. And he is the quietest player on any pitch. So I, I do feel like, with a lot of players moving around him, like the midfield chopping and changing quite a lot, and the defence chopping and changing a fair amount as well. Reese James and Cesar Azpilicueta have been moving between each other quite a lot. Um, mm. The mid, the back uh, centre-back partnership has changed quite a few times as well. Um, Emerson has had to come in for Ben Chilwell's injuries. I, I do wonder if all of these stumbling, not stumbling blocks, but all of, all of these, these points are which the, the starting lineup changes do not benefit him. Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely true. And I think 
for a while, it's definitely been the case to to look at Chelsea's midfield, and I think Kante is complemented very well by by uh, Kovacic for that exact reason. You, they have a little bit of a complementing each other's weak areas, but I just he he just hasn't looked. If we talk about how you know Man City look a bit lethargic, Kante doesn't look lethargic, but he almost looks like he's been running to the ground a bit. I think he's played every game this season, and usually he was known for sort of being Mister Energy, Mister Duracell. He'll never run out, and I think he has a bit. Well, I mean, I guess he is also, you know, getting played in pretty much every game. And I think maybe yeah. he just needs to be managed a little bit. Um, it, you're right. He does normally, he has in the past been a player that can play any game. And there was a point, I think, where he wasn't even training for weeks on end. Um, and this was at um, Sari's like, unbeaten run for a while, or Conte's unbeaten run for a while, sorry. He was injured and wouldn't train at all during the week and then would still turn up on the weekend and just boss midfields. So, I mean, he's getting to, not the business end, but he's 28, turning 29, and he maybe needs to change his expectations for output. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's the case. Uh, talking just about the manager, um, two questions. Uh, firstly... Do you think that Lampard, because a lot of discussion has been had about whether or not he'll go, and my question there is, do you think that because of his achievement last season, which I think, you know, let's let's be clear, that was an achievement, finishing third with that team, um, or sorry, f- finishing fourth with that team, rather, was, was an achievement. Do you think through that last season, and of course, obviously, his status as a club legend, he's earned some reprieve from the notoriously swift chopping block at Chelsea? I think so, and I think that he has a lot, a lot of respect in the club, in the boardroom, with the fans, and I don't think he'll leave before the end of the season at all, even if you know they're maybe 10th or 11th, um, mm. but he's not safe. I don't think any manager at Chelsea is ever really going to be, or even feel truly safe. Um, I think I think he's got a long way to go before talks of his dismissal will feel threatening but mm-hmm. yeah it's it's there i mean he's had a lot of of money invested in his side and if they can't improve upon their standing last season where they spent more than any other club comfortably in the prem that's definitely a, a big red flag yeah, no, it definitely is. Which kind of leads me into my into my second part of the question. If if it is the case that Frank Lampard gets a, a bit of a stay of execution, he gets a you know a little bit more time and a little bit more respect than is usually given to the managers at Chelsea, which is like three games. <laughs> Do you think that's going to be to the club's benefit or the detriment? Because I think there is an argument to be made that with these young players coming through, both the young players brought in and the young players coming um, uh, from the academy, that having a young manager grow with them could be useful. But at the same time, if it's the case that he's not the man for the job, which I, I guess is also the question I'm asking you whether or not you think he is, um, you know, is keeping him around for longer a good thing? Is it a good show of faith? Or is it, you know, maybe a bit of blind bias that's going to come back to bite Chelsea? As in, do you think... Are you asking if I think Chelsea should cut their losses with Lampard now? Or just that I think... I think they probably will, just because of the respect for him, keep him longer than they should keep him. If right, yeah, that, he that, is that, looking like he needs to be fired. Yeah I, yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. I don't think he's anywhere near there yet. But yeah, it's, it's hard because it's also tied into how players are betting in at the club as well. You know, is Timo Werner going to 
actually start scoring goals? Is Hakim Ziyech going to get a proper run in the starting lineup? Um, time will tell. Is Kai Havertz going to do really well as a striker, as an attacking mid, as a winger? Who knows? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of questions, I think, is the main thing, right? Just loads of questions around his strongest side and where they will finish and how good these players are. Yeah, and I, I, to be honest with you, I really don't know where I stand on it either because there are times when I watch Chelsea and particularly his substitutions and his 11s are so suspect sometimes. But at the same time, I can kind of understand the logic of just trying to like bash Timo Werner's head into a brick wall until he starts scoring. Just play him and play him and play him and hope that eventually he plays himself into form. But man, is it painful watching him play at the moment. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is interesting because I do feel like when you get all of these ex-players becoming managers, it seems to me like the best manager would be one who has had quite a storied career in terms of they will know what it's like to be left out of the starting lineup. They'll know what it's like to maybe even get relegated or they'll know what it's like to get worried that their manager doesn't like them or wants to sell them because then they can you know, negotiate all of those positions with their players. Frank Lampard knows one thing, which is winning. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's a good point because a lot of the most classic legendary Premier League managers are players that you know, are former players rather that didn't exactly have storied careers. I mean, Alex Ferguson had his success in Scotland, uh, but other than that, wasn't exactly you know legendary status to the same level as he was as a manager. Jose Mourinho obviously was a failed footballer. Arsene Wenger was a midfielder slash defender slash striker somewhere in France or Germany. No one's fully sure. Uh, Jurgen Klopp had a pretty muted career, so. A lot of the managers that are known for their flexibility and their adaptability to difficult situations, as well as their ability to flex in in you know the the plentiful times, are the ones that have had you know more rocky careers. Whereas your Oles and your Franks, who have chiefly known as as you say success in their playing careers, maybe are all there when it's you know you're three 0 up. But when think the chips are down, it's a bit. I think Frank Lampard came out with something like that in a post match interview. Um, after the Chelsea uh, City game, and he said something along the lines of, oh, yeah, I've had moments like this, but then we ended up winning the league. And I was like, so you haven't had moments like this then? Unless they end up winning the league, Cam. Unless that. Um, Well, yeah, yeah, unless that. (laughs) You're absolutely right. I think that it'll just be interesting to see how he negotiates the situations because as as a player... I feel like his um, his special source was just working really hard. And mm-hmm. you can't just work really hard. You have to be smart and tactically flexible. And you almost have to be a politician in terms of negotiating the press and the boardroom and the players. And yeah, these are, these are big questions for a relatively untested manager. So... Working really hard, as well as also on top of that being extremely innately talented. So, like something a working really hard, which is something that I suppose you can teach, but it's it's or something that you know doesn't work as well for other people as it does. But also being just extremely innately talented, which is not something you can teach. Yeah, true. I mean that that also helps. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I mean for me, it's just like there's a big question mark above Stamford Bridge at the moment, and obviously people listen to podcasts to give answers i have none for this specific team um i think that they could well finish fourth or fifth and also 10th or 11th 
I'd be surprised. I think something needs to go a little more wrong than it's going now. And I, th- you, I think fourth think or fifth is more just that I think the problems continue. Maybe sixth, seventh, to be fair. Yeah, I, I was just I was just asking that just to see like where you thought their lower end was. I, I think realistically it's probably going to be fourth or fifth because uh, it would have to really go down the pan <laughs> for them to finish 10th, 11th. But, you know, it's, it's football after all. Um, should we move into our next team uh, before we spend too long pontificating over Frank Lampard's uh, P45 status? Let's do it. Um, which takes us to Southampton. Yeah, and Southampton are one for me that I'm, I, I like looking at Southampton and kind of imagining what I would do. I mean, we've already done this literally, but like I always like imagining with Southampton in particular what I would do if I was the director of football there because I always feel especially this season and last season, like they're one or two signings away from having one insanely good season and finishing like fifth or fourth just out of the blue because they're a really capable outfit at the back. They can do simple things well, which is not a bad thing. I mean that in the best possible way. They they can absolutely nail set pieces. They're not the kind of team that you ever see take a corner and go, oh, they haven't cleared the first man. And they, they just practice and, and nail the simple things and, and execute them you know, perfectly. All they're missing is a little bit of star quality. And if they had one or two players like that, I really wouldn't be surprised to just see them, you know, at the end of the season, everyone just being like, what? Southampton are fourth? Um, so so I would love to see that. Um, not that they have anything to be unhappy with at the moment, to be fair, but I, I just, they always seem to me like a team on the cusp of doing something exceptional, um, just for the fans and themselves, which would be, I don't know, amazing to see. I know what you mean, and I think it probably just speaks to who they are as a selling club mm-hmm. in that I think they do sell their players at the right times for them, but also in terms of the money that they get for them, but also they yeah. sell their players and then their players go on and explode. Um, yeah. There, there, there's an aspect of that as well. But I, I, so it's that, but also the fact that even with the current crop of players, they're a, a, a good solid side I would just love to see one really exciting, kind of like, you know, how there are some sides that aren't very good, but then have one exciting player come in and sort of make them okay. Like, I'm just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of like Dimitri Payet at West Ham. Um, If they had like a couple of Payet-esque players coming to the current Southampton team, I'd be just really excited to see how that would turn out. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, Well, I mean, they had a player like that in Dusan Tadic until recently, and he never really quite made the grade. Um, has gone on to do bits elsewhere. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think if they can get the right blend of maybe a young player coming through or just a really good under-the-radar signing or two, yeah, um, I, I could. I know what you mean. Agreed. I would just be excited to see. Uh, looking at our next team, which is uh, West Ham, which is our 10th team before we go into useless trivia. Uh, West Ham have been... An interesting one. They've been defensively a lot better this season. Uh, offensively as well, a few new options have come forward. This is a lot like when we were talking about Villa. I think that for a lot of teams, this would be just an okay position or for some teams, a disappointing position. But looking at how they were sort of flirting with relegation at the end of last season, really good position for them to be in. Um, I think that West Ham are not worried about a lot of the matches they're in because they know they can get points where they need to. They know they've got a lot of different options to get those points from. Um yeah, I think this is going to be West Ham are a team that, from my understanding and my friends who are fans, it's often like <laughs> clenching your cheeks for most of the season. And I think this is going to be one where they're going to be relatively chilled out. Agreed. They definitely have been surpassing my expectations. I think I um, 
predicted them finishing rock bottom, which was maybe uh, I don't know. It's not <laughs> ambitious, like the opposite of ambitious. Um, so yeah, I think that they definitely have got a, a couple of really good informed players at the moment, and it should be a safe season relative to most of their seasons. Uh, moving into useless trivia. Uh, I've got a little bit of a story for you this week, a little bit of football history, as I, as I like to go into sometimes. Uh, oh, and I would like you, Rupert, if you might, to cast your mind back to the very first World Cup tournament in Uruguay. Um, 13 teams took part in this competition. It was this a weird 1930? number. 1930? 1930, yeah. Uh, 13, team, 13 nations took part in the competition uh, because Egypt were unable to get over because of a storm, meaning their boat couldn't pick them up. Uh, seven from South America, two from North America, and four nations made the arduous journey, because of this was 1930, so it predated uh, commercial airline travel by about 20 years, from Europe, which were Belgium, France, Yugoslavia, and Romania. Uh, Belgium, France, and Romania all travelled over on a ship called the Conte Verde. And just for any of our listeners who are into football history or interesting stories, I'd really encourage you to Google that and look into it. It's called the Conte Verde because there are some really interesting and some quite funny stories about the 15-day voyage they had over there and the 15-day voyage they had back. Um, And I'm lifting one of these stories from the voyage back, which was after the tournament concluded. And the ship set sail for its various European destinations. Uh, and en route home, one of the Romanian players, a man named Alfred Ferraru, fell ill with pneumonia. And not being able to make the full journey home, they left him in Genoa to recuperate. When the ship arrived uh, near the train station, they took the train back to Bucharest. There was a huge crowd gathered to welcome the whole team. And when his absence was noted, the rumour spread that he died at the World Cup in South America. Um, accordingly, his mother organised a wake to mark the passing of her son, and of course, you know what's coming next, Ferraru ended up arriving home on the morning of his own wake, causing his mother to faint. Uh, what was impressive about this player was that not only was he not dead, but was healthy enough to compete again as a, sto- as a sportsman, both as a figure skater in the 1936 Winter Olympics, and as a bobsled- a bobslayer? A bobsledist? Bob Bobsledder? <laughs> a bobsledder? But yeah, so, so he played in the World Cup, then figure skated in the Winter Olympics, and bobsled um, after being presumed dead. Wow. I mean, that that is a man who has lost all fear in his life, you would assume, and it's just going to grab it by the horns. Um, wow, what a life story. Right? Where's the movie? Something really horrible and eldritch about turning up to your own wake. Right? Can you imagine? Because that's one thing. It's like you had a story a couple of weeks ago about a bloke turning up to a game and they were they had like him on the programs or something. Imagine turning up to your own house and your mother's like weeping over a picture of you with a... Oh. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> mad. What have you got for us? Um, but a nice, a nice old story. I too have a, um, a story about a player who graced our pitches and has since retired... Slightly more recently, however, uh, by the name of Gerardo Bedoya, if you've ever heard of him. Mm -hmm. Um, I had not until I came across the dubious statistic that he has had the most red cards in his entire career with 45. Jesus Christ. Wow. Which is um, pretty, pretty wild, um, including 14 in one season. Um, 
So it's a double-edged sword. His uh, fans at every club he went to absolutely adored him because he was seen as the guy who would give 110% in all games because, you know, clearly he was really diving into the challenges. Those 14 red cards came in a, um, a season in which his side won the title. Um, he was a Colombian who was playing in, in South America for his entire career. And um, just a couple of quite funny stories about him. Um, his final red card, or one of his final red cards, came when he elbowed a player to the ground and then proceeded to kick him in the head. Um, and he also, having retired in 2015, was sent off as an assistant manager 21 minutes into his first game. <laughs> So clearly not a man with a calm head on his shoulders. Um, but yeah, just was a, an interesting story to hear about as a, as a guy who clearly just loved the game more than anyone on the pitch, but did not know how to keep his uh, shins, his elbows and his studs to himself. Loved the game, absolutely despised the people playing it. Exactly, yeah. So I think in the last um, five years uh, as a manager, he's already been sent off twice. <laughs> And um, the uh, the funny part that I came across was that when apparently in the post-match interview for his final red card, which was the elbow and then the kicking on the ground, he said, and apparently sincerely, it's just strange because I'm really not like that. <laughs> That's great. They never think they are, do they? They do not. Um, looking at our f- first team of the second half of the table, which is Arsenal. Uh, they've had one of the better Christmas periods following an absolutely abysmal run that saw them sort of at first jokingly and then less and less jokingly linked to a relegation dogfight. Um, but they picked up nine points from nine. And actually, when we were talking about Chelsea earlier, we didn't mention the fact that they lost in a match to Arsenal and put in probably their best performance of the season against West Brom as well. Um and again, maybe they look like they've turned a corner, chiefly because of their young talents. But I do think, and I think this is really important, that Arsenal fans and anyone who's thinking about putting bets on Arsenal in the future, which you should never do, should temper their expectations. Because a lot of their players, especially the young ones, I think are just they're, they're very gingerly taking their first steps into the senior level. I think Emil Smith-Rowe was absolutely fantastic against Chelsea and West Brom, but I th- think he still has a way to go before he can be a Premier League quality number 10, which is what Arsenal are expecting him to be. Um, obviously, he could do a Bukayo Saka and immediately step up to the level, but two really good games and then one slightly tricky game against Brighton is not enough evidence for me to say that he's going to be able to shoulder that team's entire creative burden, which given that they don't have any other number 10s, is what he'll have to do. Yeah, okay, so while while I agree with you that he's not quite ready to lead the line every week, I think it's an interesting, I guess, compar- difference to, to make in how you define a Premier League standard player, because he's not ready to, to put it all on his shoulders and do it every week, but he has dominated from the number 10 position in two really key games. Beating Chelsea was massive. And then, as you said, their best performance to date. Those are two no small feats. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think he's definitely showing glimpses of the fact that he is absolutely a Premier League quality player. Um, It's it's just his his youth and consistency that that we need to watch. That and also, we've talked about this, this, not phenomenon, but this happening or... I'm trying to think of the word I mean, but like we've talked about this 
I guess, phenomenon before about players being a second behind the game or half a second behind the game when they're coming up a level. And particularly against Brighton when Arsenal weren't on top of the game and things weren't flying around as much as they were against Chelsea or or, uh, West Brom, I did look at ESR and think, "Mm, he's half a second slower than he needs to be. And that's only going to get remedied by playing games. He might play five games and really, really slide into it, like, for example, Bukayo Sakura's. But at the same time, I did think, well... Arsenal versus Chelsea is a derby. The spirits are clearly very high. The wind favoured Arsenal on the day. West Brom versus Arsenal. West Brom are side in real turmoil. They've conceded like 12 goals in their last three games. So I just think temper your expectations. No one more than me loves to see young players come in and succeed. And he's obviously had two absolutely amazing games. But at the same time, you just want to temper your expectations. Same thing with Gabriel Martinelli, for example, uh, is another one. Came in, looked really, really good against Chelsea, but he is kind of like, he's almost like the a mini Aguero. Really, really, really impressive, but you never know how much he's going to be able to play. Both games he played, he came off on the 70th minute-ish, because they were worried about injuries. So I think great for Arsenal fans and great for Arsenal as a side that they've turned a corner at least over this Christmas period. Whether it's going to be consistent, I think it's a different question entirely. Yeah, definitely. And, and they've still got a lot of work to do in... Still, weirdly, getting the best out of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang because Mm -hmm. he has had definitely a couple of um, bad games this season so far. I think that, yeah, I don't want to just talk about Emile Smith-Rowe and Bukayo Saka when we talk about their season because it has been defined by more players than that. Um, Kieran Tierney as well has has really stepped up. Um, But, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a case of tempered expectations, as you said. I think so. And I think, yeah, there are loads of other players. Those are just the young ones who have been, you know, snatching all the headlines in the last few games. And that's why I wanted to single them out. But Kieran Tierney, of course, has been exceptional. It's just not as much of a headline grabber because, in my opinion, he's been one of the few players who's turned up every game for Arsenal, really. Even when they've been bad, he's been there chasing the ball to the final minutes and putting in great crosses, even if no one's there to to finish them. Um, I think if Arsenal are going to get anything out of this season, it's not going to be from those players alone, but it's going to be from those players lighting a fire under the more sort of lacklustre performers this season. So, for example, Aubameyang, who I don't think... I, I don't blame him for having a, a, a duck. You know, every striker has them. It just happens that his has come at this time, which is really, really unfortunate. Um, I think if Arsenal keep playing like they have recently, he'll get his shooting moves back on and, and they'll be back in form. But, yeah, I, I just... I think it would be easy for anyone to get carried away about Arsenal being in exceptional form at the moment because they are in great form over the base of the last three games, but let's not happen. Let's not forget what happened just before that. Well, definitely. I mean, they're still in 11th place with only 23 points from 17 games. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think definitely the, the wider picture cannot be ignored. Um, let's move on to Leeds. And I'm tempted to just kind of wind you up and let you go. Let's talk. Marcelo Bielsa, Leeds, go. <laughs> Well, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent about something I've already uh, discussed, but rather I think it'd be more interesting to sort of just question what Leeds' aims are this season. Because for most teams coming up to the Prem, the primary objective is, is just to stay up. Um, and if you finish mid-table, that's a bonus. If you manage to finish like 13th instead of 16th, hey, fantastic, beers all round. Um, but somehow I feel like Leeds just aren't going to be satisfied with anything less than a top-half finish, which especially this season is particularly difficult the competition is quite fierce all the teams who've gone through ahead of Leeds have potentially a better claim to be in that top 10 than them especially you know because they've been in the Premier League for longer um so I think that's going to be very very difficult I think that's what they're what they're going to be going for um 
I do think it's going to be interesting to see how their season ends up, almost from like an educational perspective. Because Marcelo Bielsa, to me, he's like one of the—he's the manager at equivalent of. You ever seen on YouTube like those people who speed run games, and they'll be like, "Can I beat Mario sixty four blindfolded?" Yeah, he—that's—that's that, that's him for me. He—he's one of those guys. He's like <laughs> managing. He's been managed so long. He's like, "Can I finish top half by only winning or losing with five goal margins?" I just think he's playing by some alternate rule set that no one else can see except for him and because of that i'm really interested to see where they finish at the end of the season um i think they're going to go for top half whether they get it or not is a different question entirely i think they probably will uh, and i think that'll be a testament to them but we'll see it's um it's certainly a nice idea and obviously yeah you, you don't need to look much further than the results they've had to know that they are 100 percent an ambitious side um, personally, I think that we will probably see them somewhere between 8 and 12. Yeah, I think that's exactly where we'll see them. I'm, I'm slightly erring on the side of slightly higher, but at the same time, it's it's so impossible to even come close to predicting what's going to happen to a side that will just lose 5-0 and then win 5-0 back-to-back. So. <laughs> yeah, no, very, very true. Um, definitely a wild, wild ride watching them, enjoying them week in, week out. I think, to, yeah, to me, the, the main failing this season so far has just been the, the failure to capture Ben White as a really mm. key part of their defence. And I think in terms of the narrative in my head, I could very easily see them finish kind of 10th and then maybe go for Ben White again, get him, and then keep step-stoning their way up the table. Because yeah, to right. me, they're here to stay. It, it's Yeah, I think they definitely are. We'll see where they go next. Um, but that's crazy lead. Looking at pragmatic wolves, or usually pragmatic wolves, um, and wolves are an interesting team because they're sort of one of three teams for me that I'm going to talk about in, in the next few uh, teams we do talk about. Which is that one thing has been really interesting this season to me, uniquely interesting, is, and it's the ability to tell for the first time, to the best of my knowledge, which sides take the most benefit from playing in front of their fans. Um, Obviously, everyone has like some home field advantage, and some teams you can see have like you know they're, they're real fortresses. But some sides go even further beyond and like pull it out all you know on the bag for away day fans, and you know when they're on the road, the fans who travel. Da, 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 da. And I think Wolves are one of these sides. So I think that you look at them as a team, and on the face of it, not that much has changed with their squad aside from Diego Yota leaving uh, and obviously Raúl Jiménez's injury more recently. But goal scoring isn't really where their problem has been for me. And I'll clarify that in a second because I think it's, a, it's an important thing to clarify. But they have scored in four of their last five matches, including three against Brighton and two against Chelsea. Um, instead, I think the issue is at the back. Because at the end of last season, they had the be- their fifth best defensive record uh, after the top three teams at Sheffield United. But now they have one of the worst. Um, and I think what I wanted to clarify with the goal scoring was that I said it wasn't their problem. Um but perhaps it's more accurate to say that it isn't an area where things have got worse. Because they didn't score a lot of goals last time out, but at least they could defend. And now that they've lost that, the lack of goals is really apparent. It's true, but I, I do feel like that is borne out by the fact that they have lost some key players up front. I think that we've talked before about how Diogo Jota, has, his departure has basically rid them of their consistency. And definitely with the loss of Jimenez as well in the starting lineup, they now need to dig deeper to get goals, which means committing themselves more. And for example, against Brighton, you know they had 
50% possession, they had more shots, more shots on target, more corners. They now have to come out of their shells a little bit more where their natural position is to sit deep. So I think it's more the fact that their game plans are having to change because of the lack of personnel. Right. My my point, though, was, I don't know if we maybe crossed like ships in the night there, but I, I was saying I don't think their issue is goal scoring. I think their issue is actually the reverse, is that they have sort of learnt to play a very sort of reserved attacking style, which is fine, given you can hold it up at the back. And the fact that Jimenez has gone missing shouldn't really be that much of an issue if they're still scoring roughly the same amount of goals. The problem isn't that they're scoring less goals, it's that they're conceding more. So what they need to do is shore up so they can, you know, they don't need to worry about only scoring two goals a game because you can see Yeah, so, but, but what I'm saying is that the reason why their defence isn't as strong is because they need to over, overreach in attack. So it's hard to say, like, they just need to, you know, concede less when... They're conceding less because they need to score more. I suppose that's true, but at the same time, with examples like the Brighton match, they let a 3-1 lead get away from them. So at that point, you don't need to keep over overreaching. That's true. I mean, they definitely need to um, develop you know, the ability to kill games, which they maybe have lost sight of. Um, but yeah, I do which think is crazy that... to say about Wolves, right? It is weird, yeah, because they are you know, king of the, the 1-0, 2-0. That's, that's, that's the point I was sort of at large the point I was trying to make because it's something they were so good at last season scoring two and just going no more goals and now they haven't lost the ability to go let's score two but they have lost the ability to go no more goals which shouldn't be caused by the loss of Yotta or Jimenez well I guess you know someone like Jimenez he isn't just you know his value is not just in the goals that he scores he is uh, one of the oldest players in the side and he leads from the front so you yeah. know with the loss of him they definitely do look like a different one mentally as well. That's very true. Uh, moving on to Crystal Palace. Uh, what are your thoughts on Crystal Palace's season so far? They're having an interesting one because we have talked about how they might need another attacking player to complement Wilfred Zaha. We've talked about how they've struggled for goals. Sometimes they don't struggle for goals. Uh, sometimes they look really good in defence. Sometimes they look like they could be poked apart with a, a slightly pointy stick. Um... And yeah, I just think that it's it's a it's going to be a season defined by inconsistency, and I think that it could well be Zaha's last season. Yeah, I think he he's looked very frustrated recently. There's been a lot of little lashing out and and little jabs and things that sort of go beyond the sort of trying to wind up players. I think he is also trying to do that, but it, it, in my mind, you can he himself see is him wound up. Out of frustration. Yeah, yeah, so so I I agree with that. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's not going to be the most storied season for Crystal Palace, but to be honest with you, that might be what they want, um, just to sort of slink to the back of the room, not be worried about going down, try and just comfortably finish 14th or 15th, uh, and they'll be happy with that, which is probably how I think their season's going to go. Agreed. Yeah, they haven't improved significantly enough to not be in and around there at the end of the season. Uh, looking at Newcastle, who are one of the sides that are doing quite a bit worse than I thought they would. Um, I thought bringing in Callum Wilson was a really interesting signing. I thought Ryan Fraser was also a really interesting import, although he had his issues last season, so who knows what you know the, the deal is with his character. And at times, they have looked really good, but here they are, 19 points, not really looking like they're at the right end of the table. Um, what's your take on Newcastle so far? How's their season gone in your eyes? Yeah, so it's interesting to talk to a Newcastle fan because 
in my mind, um, you know, players like Miguel Almiron and Alan St. Maximan and, and people like this are really exciting talents that I can't wait to see explode. And talking to fans, there seems to be a little bit more frustration than, I guess, the neutral, because there just is the sense that they are not yet performing as they could and should. I feel like they are just not quite clicking in, in the way that they might, based on the side they have. They're definitely lacking, as we talked about, a really good centre-back, and I think that Callum Wilson is required to do a lot of the heavy lifting up front, obviously, as is borne out in the statistics. And without him, it's a different story, and with him nullified, it's a different story. They are a side that I could absolutely see sacking their manager partway through the season, getting a new one who's a little bit more ambitious and pulling out a couple of really interesting results. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see happen to them because I, I do think they are less than the sum of their parts right now. I'd agree with you. Oh, so do you think it's it's time for him to go? Uh, I, I don't know if it's entirely Steve Bruce's fault because a lot of it is down to the squad, a lot of ageing players that aren't quite at the level, but I could definitely see a new manager finding a more creative way to deploy players like Almiron, Wilson and Alisson Maximan, whether that would make them more vulnerable and actually make them worse or whether it would enhance them and make them win games they, they've been drawing is, is really up to what the manager did with them. Um, but I just think as a team, certainly at least defensively, they should be doing better than they are. So maybe it's just a case of, you know, Steve Bruce is doing what he can and keeping it muted so they don't concede too much, but that comes at the cost of, of offensive flair. Um, as a neutral who doesn't necessarily have a lot of skin in the game on how Newcastle do, I would just like to see them play good football. So <laughs> that's that's my thing. Agreed. Well, um, there's always a career in voice acting for Steve Bruce if he does indeed get the can. Um, <laughs> and speaking of voice acting managers... Speaking of, um, Sean Dyke. Takes us perfectly into Burnley, who weirdly... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe even a couple of months ago, were one of my favourites to go down. They just looked like they could not string two passes together. And they still look like they can't string two passes together. But they won three games in December. So, you know, obviously one against Arsenal was a was a big scab to take. And they've rolled off that into more confidence. They obviously got a win at the end of November against Crystal Palace too. So they got four wins in quite a short period of time. And now have 16 points, which is five points clear of the relegation zone which given some of the results they've been on the end of this season and some of the football they've played is not bad at all it's not bad and I for one have been really impressed with how their you know their, their midfield duo of Ashley Westwood and Josh Brownhill have kind of turned their seasons around because they started as you said just looking like they were completely bereft of any sort of creativity and now you know they're playing really good positive forward passes they're dovetailing quite nicely with Robbie Brady on the right mid. Um, and yeah, they, they definitely look like a different side. I think Sean Dyke is absolutely pulling a Houdini right now because I too thought that they would really struggle due to the lack of um, you know investment in, in the side. But here we are being proved wrong, as often happens. Yeah, and they're, they're another side like Wolves that I definitely would say have struggled a lot from the lack of fans. And I think maybe the short period where fans were able to go to some of their games uh, would have helped, um, certainly in, in getting that period, or at least knowing that the fans were still at their back would have helped them pick up some of those wins. Um, Sean Dyke loves an audience, what can we so, say? 
So, so that Brighton are the team, weirdly, that I maybe have the least to say about. I feel like, I mean, I mentioned this to you earlier, but Brighton are a side that, as we said in our league prediction, as again we said nothing, they just kind of fill a role. They're kind of just like the gap between who's going down and who's worried about going down, but are somehow neither ever the, either of those themselves. True. I think this is probably maybe almost the cruelest side to be supporting right now because sometimes you think they look good and, you know, uh, Neil Morpé has a great game and Pascal Gross looks like he was the, that player who had the, the most created chances in the Bundesliga before he moved. Um, and then other times you think there's no way we're not getting relegated. And those those moments happen like five minutes between each other. Um, so yeah, I, I think definitely they very much play the line between will they, won't they stay up? And do, I agree with you. you there's not fans? much to talk about right now that we haven't talked about, but I'm I'm confident that there will be more to talk about during the season as you know Danny Welbeck grows more into the side as Tariq Lamptey comes back. Um, it, they are an interesting team to watch, but yeah, as a result, we've talked about them quite a lot. <laughs> I just think, like, are they ever not going to be 17th, 16th? Like, every time they go too high, they're like, oh god, we're going to lose some points, lads. And every time they go low, they're like, ooh, got to maintain our lifetime just above the relegation zone spot. Reminds me of, um, there was a, uh, there's a story about this guy um, who, in order to, like, maintain peak laziness, he worked harder than anyone so that he could get, like, the perfect results in the exams in order to, to stay at his like position and not improve and not get fired. Um, and yeah, I think um, that's definitely Brighton. sometimes that is Brighton. Uh, looking at the teams that we've got in the relegation period here, starting with Fulham. Uh, Fulham looked like they were going to turn things around a little bit following the window. And they had a couple of good performances, a couple of good results. Obviously, the beating Leicester was absolutely massive, but they're still in search of that something to get them out of the relegation zone. They've had four draws in a row, which is, on the one hand, points on the board, and it's against teams like Liverpool and Southampton, so it's never a bad point to get, but they'll be having to get three points from upcoming games uh, in January, like Brighton and West Brom, if they want to start the march towards safety. Otherwise, it's just going to be loads and loads of one-pointers. That's not going to add up to enough for safety. See you later. Yeah, I think the main thing to say about Fulham is that I am more confident that they will stay up now than I was two months ago. Um, I, I do think their side two, is growing. Two or three months ago, yeah. I thought they were going the first like five games. I was like, see you never. But then they look like they can actually play football. Yeah, and they've continued that form. I mean, one of those draws that you mentioned was against Liverpool, um, mm, yeah. which yeah, it's not nothing. Um, but yeah, no. they're very much still finding their best eleven. very much still... Working out, I, I would say their identity under Scott Parker, um, despite this not being his first season. It, yeah, I am interested to see where they will end up because I could definitely see them making it out of the relegation zone. I could also see them coming last. 
Yeah, well, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what, which which way they go. Um, looking at West Brom, West Brom is just a weird one because they're a defensive side that can't defend. Um, I get that's why you would appoint Big Sam because that's his whole thing. That's his raison d'etre is, is patching up leaky defences. But if you look at the first four games under him, I, I sort of alluded to it earlier, they've had one impressive away point at Anfield. So that was massive. That's like Big Sam's bread and butter. But then the other three matches combined for no goals scored and 12 goals conceded. Um just partially just because of Big Sam, I'm not 100% sure they'll go down. There's like a lot of season left to play and there are other teams around that could enable them to pull off what Villa did last season. But this, at the moment, is looking like Big Sam's most ambitious project yet. And wow, that is saying something. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously the, the main bright spark in defence is um, their goalkeeper, Sam Johnston. Um, and he he's very much holding the, the flame for them, um, making sure that they are still in games quite a lot. I think that if anyone can turn them around, it's Big Sam, right? That's that's what we talked about. You know, he, he is the ultimate manager who will, will pull it out. And they need defensive solidity. They are a defensive-minded side. He can teach them that. Yeah, that's true. That's definitely true. There, there's at least a little bit of hope at the end of tunnel for them. Where there isn't any hope, however, is up in Sheffield for poor old Sheffield United, who are on course to better or worsen Derby's record of the lowest points tally uh, in Premier League history with 11. Um, Never before has a team reached 17 league games without a single win. Even Derby picked up a win uh, with a 1-0 over Newcastle in September of 2007. Um, This is the third of my three sides that has just absolutely suffered from a lack of fans. And I just look at some of their signings, and we talked about Villa earlier, and some of the signings that Villa made. Comparing Rian Brewster and Aaron Ramsdale as signings to Ollie Watkins and Emiliano Martinez, not a lot of difference in the amount of money spent on those two signings. I think actually they're within a couple of million of each other, both of them. Yeah, but just leagues apart. And leagues apart. One side has picked up an absolutely exciting player who's revitalised their attack and made them look like an exciting, vigorous, you know, you know, side that's going to go out and score a lot of goals. And a keeper that's got the most clean sheets in the league looks absolutely like a wall every time he plays. And the others have got, you know, the Ramsdale signing I have a little bit of sympathy for because they did need a new keeper with Dean Henson going back to United. I can kind of understand the logic of going to someone with. Premier League experience and with Bournemouth just having gone down I could see how Ramsdale would maybe have been like one of the easiest options to fill that criteria but then the price tag for a keeper that was okay last season but not amazing was question mark and then Rian Brewster we already talked about how he hadn't played a second of Premier League football he's now played 12 games of Premier League football for Sheffield United no goals no assists and I, I it was just one of those signings that even when they made it I was like Chelsea make that signing and I'd be scratching my head. Man City make that signing, I'd be scratching my head. And they have options and nothing to lose, really, by making that signing. Why on earth have Sheffield United paid that much for an unproven player when there's so many other options that you could go for? Yeah, and I think definitely it's that sense of kind of why are they trusting these unproven players. Another example I would give is Ethan Ampadu, the mm. uh, the Chelsea loanee who spent a whole season last year on the bench um, for RB Leipzig, barely played um, any minutes, let alone 90. And, and to now have started, you know, the 10 of 11 is just, just speaks to what you've been saying, which is that it just doesn't really, doesn't really feel like decisions that are made by professionals. 
Um, yeah, particularly because for me, in a lot of ways, when I was talking about Wolves earlier and how I think they need to work on sort of conceding less uh, rather than scoring more, Sheffield are kind of the opposite. Obviously, conceding less would help, but they've been they've lost 15 games this season. 11 of those defeats have been by a one-goal margin, including defeats against Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, Arsenal, and Leicester, not to mention the two draws. So all of those games could have been swung by one good goal scorer, or, or, or you know, two if they'd split the money of Rian Brewster in half. I just don't understand. It, it, it's going to go down, probably in Sheffield United history, as one of the biggest blunders they've ever made, because that is not a small amount of money. You could buy two good players from the championship. You could buy one really... I mean, that's basically Ollie Watkins' money. <laughs> and instead, they've gone for someone who cannot score. Similarly, Oliver Burke, zero goals, one assist so far. So I just... The fact that they're they're so bad at the moment in terms of points, but they've also lost so many of these games by a one-goal margin, is just so infuriating as someone who... You know, you don't really like to see most teams go down, but Sheffield was such a plucky underdog last season. I think they, they earned really a soft were. spot with, with with a lot of fans. And so to watch them make such a horrible mistake and just fall off so badly for like such a simple reason, it, it's just kind of frustrating. No, I know what you mean. It, it's definitely hard to watch at times and, and frustrating. And I, I feel like the other thing that I sometimes think of is, um, you know, when I look at how the side is faring this year, how good was Dean Henderson? <laughs> right? Like, how, why can't he get a game for United? How unbelievably good is he to have so, so far outperformed, you know, in the side compared to Aaron Ramsdale? Yes, Aaron Ramsdale isn't, as you said, the best signing, but Dean Henderson must have really been, uh, as you would say, having his Weetabix every morning because... It just is leagues apart, and obviously we can talk about, as you already mentioned, the fact that there are no fans and the fact that they really rely on that. But I am just blown away by, I guess, how how different the defence looks and and how much a good goalkeeper can can make that difference. Yeah, and and that's the thing is that like the the reason I say opposite to Wolves is that Wolves last season were like, well, we will score, so you know, conceding is not so much of an issue. Sheffield were like, well, we're never going to concede, so worst case scenario, nil-nil, maybe we'll bundle in a lucky goal, and that'll be great. So I just, I, I don't know, I think it was such an oversight to go for, and I don't mean this to, to pile on Rian Brewster at all, because it's not his fault. I feel any time a player gets bought for a huge sum of money and they're nowhere near good enough, it's not the player's fault that they cost that much. Um, so, so I don't mean to, to pile on Rian Brewster at all, but I just think, what a bizarre decision from Sheffield United to spend so much money on a player when they didn't have that much money to spend, clearly, because they didn't spend much elsewhere, on a player that has just done nothing for them so far. It was indeed the heist of the century by Liverpool. Um, but let's not get bogged down. Um, interesting to talk about them and interesting to see how the rest of their season plays out. And they will be doing very well to avoid the drop this season. And maybe even doing quite well to avoid becoming a statistic. Um, well. Shall we, before moving into settling the score, settle the guessing game? Yes, and I'm pretty sure who, who your your player is, but do you want to read out the clues again for the listeners? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so the three clues are that he has two nicknames, the um, Gunfighter and the Rabbit. He is no stranger to controversy, having received an eight-match ban domestically and in a separate, entirely unrelated type of incident... 
a four-month ban internationally. Um, and he is also one of only two players to have scored a hat-trick in an El Clasico Real Madrid versus Barcelona game in the last 26 years. Cameron, who is your guess? Well, let me, let, let me show you my working here. So we're talking about a player who was nicknamed the Gunman and the Rabbit, which leads me to believe he's, he's a prolific goal scorer with rabbit-like qualities. Perhaps he's a rather promiscuous fellow or, or has a penchant for carrots or has large front teeth, one of those three. Um, he has been banned on two separate occasions for very long periods of time, meaning he's quite a controversial player. Uh, and he has scored a hat-trick in our Clasico, which means that he must play for one of Barcelona or Real Madrid. Could it by any chance be the king of controversy himself, Il Canibal, Luis Suarez? It is indeed the hungry, hungry hippo, Luis Suarez. You know, for a second there, you know there's another player who played for Barcelona called the Rabbit, who I was sure you were talking about until I thought about it for a second. <laughs> I, knew it. I thought you could talk about Javier Saviola. Um, yeah, I mean, that would have been a good, uh, it was a nice little um, red herring for you there. I was trying to think of here. I had like a four-month ban. I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> no, I, it was... Um, I didn't want to make it as hard as um, Shaviola, but um, I enjoyed the fact that that's where your mind went. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely... <laughs> I always tricked myself. Definitely, yeah. The, the most... Um, one of the most controversial players uh, of our time, for sure. Um, and definitely will be remembered for years to come. And also just, just a, a great player on the pitch when he's not biting people's faces. <laughs> Wrapping us up with setting the score, we have quite a short one this week because next week is a blank game week for several teams. So we have just six matches. Uh, I'm going to quickly whiz through them, Rupert, as we're getting close to time. So Sheffield United, Newcastle. I've gone for Newcastle 2, Sheffield United 1. I've gone for Newcastle 1, Sheffield United 0. Okay. Burnley versus Manchester United. Uh, what have you said here? Burnley versus Manchester United. I think it's going to be 2-1 to Manchester United. I said 3-0 Manchester United. Wolves, Everton? Wolves, Everton. I've gone for a 0-0. I've gone for a 1-1. Manchester City versus Brighton. I've said 3-1 City. Manchester City versus Brighton. I'm going to say 2-0. Aston Villa versus Spurs. I really wanted to go for a big upset here, uh, but I think it's going to be 1-1, which is still an upset of sorts. Uh, yeah, I guess it would be. I think I'm going to go for 2-1 to... Oh, it really could go either way. I'm going to say 2-1 to Aston Villa. Nice. And wrapping us up, Arsenal versus Crystal Palace. I'm going to say Arsenal 1-0. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable guess. I'm going to go for 2-0. Wrapping up the settling the score from our last episode, which is quite a few game weeks ago, uh, but we'll dash through them now. Starting off with Leicester Man United was 2-2. I said 2-2, so I will get the three points there. Good gosh, I said 2-1 to Leicester, so well played. It's a, it's a strong start from you. It's a, straight out the gates. Aston Villa versus Palace was 3-0 Villa. I had said 2-0 Villa. I said 2-1 Villa, so again, so- a point to you. Again, point for me. Fulham versus Southampton was nil-nil. I had gone for 2-1 Southampton. I went for 2-0 to Southampton, so I will take the dubious point there to make it 4-1, keep myself in the game. Arsenal-Chelsea, I'd said 2-0 Chelsea. I said 2-1 to Chelsea, so again, <laughs> and not sadly <laughs> for you. dubious point. I'm, I'm claiming that's, that's maybe the sketchiest point I've ever won, and that's saying something. 4-2 the score. Manchester City-Newcastle ended... With um, 2-0. 2-0 to Manchester City. I guess 
Uh, I guessed 4-1, so you take the point there. Okay, 4-3. Sheffield United, Everton was nil Sheffield, one Everton. I said 1-1. I said 2-0 to Everton. Oh, so a draw there. Uh, A a draw there, but yeah, you take it on the result. Uh, Excellent. Thank you very much. Leeds versus Burnley. I said 3-0 Leeds. I said 1-0 to Burnley. Oh, so I think you take the point there again very dubiously. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, Cam. (laughs) Um, (sighs) West Ham, Brighton, I said 1-1. I said 2-1 to West Ham. Oh, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get wiped out here in the most unfair <laughs> Liverpool versus West Brom. I said four nil Liverpool. Um, I said I said four nil. No, you didn't say four nil in the end. You said three nil because we both predicted four nil. Ah, so I said three nil then, and you said four nil. So you get the point there. Ha ha! Conceding it gave me the, the and Wolves Spurs uh, was one one. I said nil nil. Um, I said. Actually, you changed your result again. Um, I was listening to our podcast earlier. Um, you said nil-nil at first, and then I guessed one-nil Wolves, at which point you changed yours to one-nil Spurs, and then we laughed about how, and I quote, it's obviously going to be one-one now. No! <laughs> Cameron, we dug our graves, but no points were, were had from either of us. Oh, I should have stuck with my guns. So that leaves me on five points. And I think I'm either on five points or six points. Well, you should find out because as we established now, if you're on five points, I will take the win due to getting Leicester Man United exactly correct. And Cam, I am afraid to say, although I'm very much not, I have six points. That's one of the absolute scummiest wins of all time. (laughs) I normally don't mind losing these, but I feel so hard done by on this one. (laughs) <laughs> oh, exceptional. I really think that my uh, high point was when I got the point for thinking that Burnley would beat Leeds 1-0. You predicted 3-1 and I took the point. <laughs> Three, no, Is there a problem with our system? No. Is there a problem with this result? No? Listen, it giveth, it taketh away. This week it, give, it giveth you having to take away from me. Next week, who knows? Um, it surely doth. Rupert, that's probably a great place to wrap up. I'm going to go seethe in my bedroom, um, tuck myself under the covers and just go to bed furious. Uh, Other than that, great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshul.